to RCA Radio, a podcast where we cover the latest news and challenges in regulatory, compliance, and quality assurance facing the life science industries. I'm your host, Brandon Miller. In this episode of RCA Radio, we'll be exploring irritation and sensitization in medical device biocompatibility for launching your products. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Jorgensen and Audrey Turley. Matt is a certified board toxicologist with a PhD in chemistry and is Nelson Laboratory's chemistry and material scientist. And Audrey is Nelson Lab's senior biocompatibility expert. Welcome, Matt and Audrey. Hey, thanks, Brandon. Thanks for the intro. It's always thanks, great to Brandon. be back. <laughs> and it's yeah. great to have it's great to have you back, Matt. It's great for you to finally join us, Audrey. I've heard so much about you. And today we're going to just jump right into part three of the preclinical testing for bi- and biocompatibility for medical device podcast series that we've started. And in this part, we're going to be diving into irritation and sensitization. And we're all gonna we really want to cover those pain points that our customers face. So let's just jump right into it. Yeah, great. That's that's a perfect introduction, Brandon. Yeah, just just to give a, a quick review. Yeah, so this is part three of our biocompatibility series. If you want to go back and listen to the first other parts, I highly recommend that you do that. They kind of build on each other. Part one was from a 10,000 foot view, like how and why should you make sure that your medical device doesn't harm or kill somebody before it actually helps them in some way. Part two was all about cytotoxicity. This is the most common and most commonly failed test and what you should do in case you get one of those failures. In addition to those, uh, those, those two topics, now we move on to irritation and sensitization. And this is actually a really important group of tests. So we're really talking about two tests in one. And, and the reason why we're doing this is because along with cytotoxicity, all medical devices, regardless of their, the nature of their contact duration and, and how they reach the patient, all devices need to have those endpoints evaluated one way or another. And, and you can see this in, in the standard that governs biocompatibility for medical devices. This is ISO 10993. There's a big table of all the different biological effects that need to be evaluated. And in that table, it's just straight columns of ease for cytosensitization and irritation. So it's something that everybody has to do. Anybody that makes a medical device really should be aware of these biological endpoints and, and know that eventually they're going to need to be evaluated and, and, and pass that. So for that reason, since, since those three are required for all, those tests are often referred to as the, the big three. Uh, but before I get too far into that, I have a very brief story. So I just got back from vacation in Peru. Along the way, my wife and I got upgraded to first class, very, very cushy. And they gave me this like blanket, this first class blanket, you know, to lay like flat in the bed. And as soon as I had that blanket on my skin, I was like, "Uh oh, something's up. And sure enough, by the time I had landed in Peru, I had started to break out with a nasty rash all over my body. I was getting these hives. So this is a, a classic sensitization reaction. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I should go to the hospital, but my wife's response was, of course, well, let's not make any rash decisions. <laughs> oh. oh my gosh. <laughs> luckily, luckily I got that, that taken care of, uh, care of right away. So, so even though these tests are common, they're required for all medical devices to, to be evaluated. Sensitization is a really big pain point. And we, and we see people in the very tail end of their medical device submissions uh, getting kind of like stuck on sensitization and being really frustrated with needing to evaluate this endpoint. So, so Audrey, you deal with this day in and day out. 
what is it about sensitization testing that is so painful and, and awkward for people to deal with? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we could even lump in irritation on this first part as well. So when we think about the big three, we have cytotoxicity, sensitization, and irritation. And like Matt said, every medical device has to have these at least these three endpoints evaluated in some way. So when we think about cytotoxicity, all those discussions, it, it's a pretty quick and inexpensive test. So most companies just think, yeah, we're happy to do that. When we get to irritation and sensitization, the main pain points are, these are animal tests. They take a little bit longer than like our bench in vitro testing and the cost is higher. So irritation just from, and these are just estimated numbers for costs and turnaround time. Irritation is about $2,000 and can take about five weeks to complete. So not, not too long, but much longer than a 10 day cytotoxicity test. Sensitization is the kicker, though, because that is about $13,000 and takes about 12 weeks to complete. So when you're at this point, you're ready to submit, you've got your final finished device, and you realize, oh my gosh, we still have three more months of testing. And that's the pain point. And so there's a lot of desire to, you know, can we get out of this testing? What's really difficult is that we care so much about the manufacturing processes that it's hard for us to always evaluate from like a literature standpoint or looking at something else in the device. Most manufacturers are not using materials that are known sensitizers. We already know that. So the biggest contributor is like processing. And just like Matt's story, I'm sure the fabric in that blanket was fine. It's most likely the detergents or if they put some sterilant on there, some chemical that they thought they cleaned off, they clearly did not. So it's a lot of the processing that we care about. So I bring that up because it's difficult to assess this from a literature standpoint. So a lot of times we do have to just go get the data by doing the testing. That is the pain point. And we absolutely understand that. However, today we're definitely going to talk about some ways to think about it, some creative approaches, um, and also just to give you some more background so you're more educated when you come to that point in your testing. So Matt, where do you want to start? Do you want to do a review of the irritation and sensitization test, like high level? Yeah, I, I think that that might be good. I, you know, I kind of go into this sometimes assuming that folks know what irritation and sensitization is, but if they have, you know, a, a limited background, it might not, that might not be the case. So I know that both sensitizers or sensitization and irritation manifest with like an inflammation biological response. Maybe you can just very briefly summarize, like what's the difference between those two tests? Why does sensitization take so much longer? Yeah. It's harder to say too, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so irritation is, so they're both manifested in how we look at that in the, in the lab for interpreting results. We look for erythema and edema, which is inflammation and swelling, redness and swelling. So for irritation, it's really just a surface exposure and it's one time or it's a surface observation from a one-time exposure of an extract from a device. So hopefully at this point we've talked about extracts we extract this device in a polar and a non-polar solvent for both tests but for irritation we're just going to inject in a rabbit along the spine just under the skin so it's an intracutaneous injection study so there's an injection there and then observations on those injection sites over a period of 72 hours so 
pretty quick test. The long lead time, the four to five weeks, is because the animals have to be ordered, acclimated, then the study run, extracts done, study run, observations, and, and report written. So that kind of gives you a very brief ex- explanation of irritation. Sensitization is much more complex because it's a more complex systemic response. For sensitization to be the true response, we need to have an initial exposure and then a repeat exposure because the initial exposure is where your body says, oh my gosh, we don't like whatever we're exposed to. And then after that, the second or third exposure, we start to see elicited responses. So you can think about poison oak or poison ivy. Typically, your first exposure, you will not have a response. So most of the times, we don't know if we've been exposed to poison ivy until the second time, because that's when your body has built up a defense mechanism to respond. Um, so to the to the toxins and, and issues that, that harm the body. So when we run sensitization testing, we still do the extracts, but we have to do multiple exposures to the animal. So we do induction phases. And then we do challenge phase where we're exposing the animal to the extract to see if there's a sensitizer there. And then we challenge them with another exposure and to see if we can identify a response. And so we'll expose them with intradermal injections. And then we look at those responses on the surface of the skin. Um, Again, looking for redness and swelling. But that is why sensitization takes so long because you have to have a time period for the body to respond to the initial exposure. So like two weeks between the last induction phase and the challenge phase to kind of go through that, but you just, it's a more complex biological response for sensitization. And it just does take the body longer to respond to a sensitizer. Yeah. And the, the way that I'm hearing that, if, if I understand correctly, is that, you know, with, with irritation, it's a one-time exposure thing, but with sensitization, we're, we have to expose an animal multiple times. We're really kind of like on biology's clock there, waiting for the appropriate amount of time to do the, the double dosing. Is that, that correct? Yeah. And you can also think about severity. So, you know, our number one goal is to not harm the patient, right? So as a manufacturer, when you think about this, if you have an irritation response, and um, once you remove the irritant, the response goes away. That is not the case for sensitizers because your body is eliciting that response. So you've got to, you have to have intervention to calm down that response. And so it is more of a, it is a severe response for the patient and could be more harmful. So when we think about risks, it's the probability of the harm and the severity of the harm. So if we have to think about sensitization is a step higher than irritation as far as difficulty for the patient to overcome that. Uh, I think it's a perfect point to drive home, right? The reason why, even though these tests themselves are irritating, the reason why we do this is to protect patient safety. And that's, I think, the reason why this is part of the suite of biocompatibility anyways, because giving a patient an allergic reaction to the medical device is a pretty severe uh, adverse uh, effect that we definitely want to avoid. So let let me ask you this. So uh, the way I understand the situation in the U.S., uh, sensitization and irritation are required to be evaluated. The US FDA hasn't recognized any in vitro alternatives to sensitization and irritation. And they've also said that they won't accept toxicological risk assessment of chemistry data to assess uh, sensitization and irritation. So it sounds like we're really backed into a corner where we have to use the animal test. And, and basically to plan that, that the smartest or more, most skillful way to approach this would be to 
be totally aware of how long this is going to take and, and plan on doing those tests, budget the time for that. Are there ideas or, or possibilities to get through the FDA and evaluate this endpoint without doing an animal test to save time and money? Yes. And I love that you brought that up. So I want to just highlight a few things because if anybody has been following in vitro irritation and our hope to get it accepted, they might be screaming at us right now. So in vitro irritation is accepted by worldwide everywhere except for the FDA. So we've heard from Japan and China, Korea, Canada, Europe, They everyone is on board with this. The FDA had some additional concerns and we want to give them due credit. It is important that we're protecting patient safety. If we're going to use new testing, we want to make sure it's correct. Um, but we're having very successful conversations with the FDA on that. So I do think that that point is going to change. Currently, it is the case, but I think it will change soon like this year is the goal. Um, for sensitization, you're right. They're not accepting like a chemistry and toxicological review. So really it is safest to always plan for the testing because it's nicer to have that time if you find another alternative. So one thing I will mention that I think has been successful is to use information from material suppliers. That is something that can absolutely be used if you buy medical grade, you know, typically Raw material suppliers will market it and say this is medical grade, meaning they have already done some sort of biocompatibility testing on the material. You just have to correlate if you do any additional manufacturing processes to that material from when you get it from the raw material supplier to when it's exposed to the patient. If that's very minimal where we're not adding any contaminants, if you just put it in a new package and send it off, we can have a very simple conversation linking the data from the supplier to the final finished device. Um, I think, Matt, you would know best about another option that we have found to be very successful is using thinking, especially materials we know super well, You just talking about residuals. And if we know that these materials themselves are safe and the manufacturing is pretty much standardized in the industry, we can just assess those from a, like a residual standpoint. So do you want to review some of the testing and thought process behind that approach? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because this is one of these, one of the very few techniques we have outside of performing sensitization and irritation testing in animals to, to address these endpoints that, that can happen faster, and in my opinion, more effectively, maybe even than, than running the animal test, right? So, so one course of action that we can have, we, so, so we know that the FDA won't explicitly accept chemistry information with the toxicological risk assessment. But there's another type of chemical evaluation where we, we prove in a general sense that the device is free from residual manufacturing materials. It, so essentially we're proving that the device is very clean and then also making a statement using material review on the, the base materials of the device. So the, the best example that I can give of that is something like a well-known solid metal implant device. So Think of something like uh, a titanium knee, right? So titanium is a super common medical device implant material. It's been tested for uh, cytosensitization and irritation a zillion times. We're probably testing it right now in the lab. And, and we know, and the FDA knows with total confidence that titanium implants aren't sensitizers. So that's undisputable. And, and so the, the goal here is then to say, okay, well, we know that the implant is made out of titanium. The only other question or variable there 
is could there be anything on the surface of that implant that might also be a sensitizer? And the way that we look at that is we say, okay, we'll review the types of materials that contact the device during the manufacturing and final cleaning. And we'll ask, okay, are there any sensitizers or irritants there? And, And then we'll make a measurement of the total residuals on the outside of the device, we we call this residual manufacturing material or RMM, using some really straightforward tests. One is called total organic carbon or TOC, and the other one is called total hydrocarbon content or THC. And and using these, we can get a quantitative and, and a very sensitive measure of is there anything on the outside of that titanium device? And if there's not, if the the device is clean within the you know the acceptance criteria that are outlined, there's there's standards for that. Then we can very confidently say, hey, the device is biocompatible. It's not a sensitizer or an irritant itself, and there's nothing on the outside that could cause sensitization or irritation. Therefore, there's not a risk of sensitization and irritation from this device. And and I think that that's probably the, the single path with the highest odds of success outside of doing the animal tests if you're going to be submitting to the US FDA. When you give that as an example, Matt, what's the key components of that approach? Like, what's some requirements I have to meet if I'm going to do that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So the FDA is going to look at this and ask, okay, can you, do you know that this material, the base material of the device, do you know that that's exactly the same as other devices that have been cleared on the market? And so in my in the example I gave, it was a solid metal titanium device. And I picked that because when you make a device out of a solid metal, you can specify what that material is exactly. It's, it's titanium made to some ASTM specification and so on and so forth. And then, so there's data and like a, a certificate of analysis that gives the elemental composition that confirms that it meets that ASTM standard. If the device is almost anything other than a solid metal device, you can run into problems really fast. Just because any plastic device, it becomes questionable if the upstream suppliers really are the same. And it can become questionable if the upstream suppliers are really using the same manufacturing methodologies and and so on and so forth. So more difficult to do this with plastics, much easier to do when it's a solid metal thing that meets a spec that you can verify. It could be done with some plastics in the in the case that you can really prove that the upstream suppliers are the same, but that, that's the biggest thing. You need to have that evidence that the material is exactly the same as what's on the market. Yeah, I, I agree. And do you know, just to drive this home, if I'm a manufacturer, I'm like, okay, so these are two other tests. We are already talking about two tests. What's the term time and a price? What's my pain point if I do TOC and THC? Do you know? Yeah, I, I know roughly. So TOC and THC are a lot less expensive than than many other chemistry tests that medical device manufacturers face, and and a lot less expensive than sensitization as well. Uh, it's it's ballpark around a thousand dollars for each of those tests, and the turnaround time is usually in the the range of four weeks. Okay. So so significantly faster. The the only thing to remember though is that you're going to need an expert evaluation on the back end of that to bring those results together and really make an authoritative claim that, okay, this information means that sensitization and irritation are are adequately evaluated. So that does add a little bit of time on the back end. Yeah, I think that's a good point to bring up. So these approaches we're talking about, if you can use your supplier information or do like a cleaning validation, 
like Matt talked about, documentation is really key because we need to bring any reviewer along the same path. It's not normal to do a cleaning validation for this. Although as Nelson Labs, we've done this for a really long time and had great success, but we still have to tie everything together, make appropriate justifications, um, and make sure we're covering all those risks or hazards. So yeah, documentation is key, even if you're going to do the testing. And, and I think about that for like outside of the U.S., they really want you to say why you have to do testing. So you still need great documentation. So um, that ties into the overall perspective of Biocom, just making sure you write down what you're doing and say why you're doing it um, so that everyone can be on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. Could, couldn't agree more. Could it, like doc, good documentation, you know, with the help or the support of a great quality management system, I think is really important throughout through all of this for sure. So understanding how this ties into your quality management system and making sure that it's documented is, is critical. So, so we talked about the pain of having to, you know, the, the fact is we just have to evaluate this, these endpoints. It's a requirement. It's painful because the test itself takes a long time. Uh, what about if you do the test and get a failure? How, how common or likely is it that you're going to get a sensitization failure? And if you do, is there a recommended course of action to a sensitization failure? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I want to add on to that irritation too in the failure discussion. So if we say, if we hit sensitization first, that's an easy conversation, at least from my experience. So just doing biocomp over 20 years, we've never seen a sensitization failure on a medical device. So I would say this is not a test with a high, high failure rate. And I think a lot of that is contributed to manufacturers not putting sensitizers in their devices, right? And you may be thinking, oh, but we have products with latex and those things that we know are an issue for patients. So, so that's different. When those things are included, then we have labeling procedures that are built into the industry because latex is a needed material and we use that widely. So, so I don't want to say that we're not paying attention to that. So but when we think about irritation, it has failed a few times. I would say it's not very common, um, but there's a path forward. So we always think about if we see that failure, my first thing I'm going to go to is how is the device used? What does this mean for a patient? Always, always, always going back to the patient because that tells me how big of a deal this is. Are we redesigning a device because this is you know, a really big deal? Or are we thinking about how the test was done and we use exaggerated conditions? Was it too exaggerated? So I'll give an example. We had a, a device a while ago, several years ago, that failed an irritation test. Now, when I say fail, I don't mean, you know, killed the animal. It just showed a slight response. So that's normally what we see on the irritation side is, side is just elevated irritation responses. So we saw something where it should be at a one or below when we're comparing our negatives to our controls or to our um, test articles. And we saw a 1.1. So still not passing. We have to do something with that data. So what we did is we went back and looked at the device. It was a clamp that was used momentarily during surgery to clamp a vein. And the clamp, there was some adhesive, and that was our suspect irritant. But we think about, okay, it's used for four hours tops. It was the, the primary use of this product, been on the market for years and years. And, you know, have we seen any clinical response? They're right there being monitored by medical professionals. 
So we did have a lot of information to go back and say, we may be seeing it here in the test, but when we look at it, we used as intended with the patient population intended, do we think it can correlate? So we didn't see a correlation there. We, we used some justification. We also then said, why don't you run an in vitro irritation test and see if we also see that. We can manipulate the extraction conditions a little bit more there where we're not worried. You know, with animal testing, you want to minimize that. You don't want to keep just testing because you want more information. We need to be really thoughtful. But with the in vitro studies, we can, you know, run several assays at once and, and see what makes sense as far as where we see a response. So we ran the in vitro irritation test. We didn't, and not under as exaggerated conditions, more simulated use, we didn't see a response, presented it back, and they accepted that approach. So the in vitro tests are helpful in those investigations. And I wouldn't say, you know, when you see failures, and I, I believe we talked about this in cytotoxicity too, it doesn't mean everything's out the window. We just have to look at that data and see what it means from a patient safety perspective. Yeah, I, I think that that's great. So I guess my, my final question or, or comment is, you know, medical device biocompatibility or, or preclinical testing with biocompatibility is something that every single medical device manufacturer has to do. Uh, they're, they're looking down the barrel of a, a complicated series of tests. Uh, they Folks might not know how to organize this or how to uh, execute all of these tests or evaluations in the most smarter, or skillful way. If a medical device customer is in that situation, what's the best thing that, that they can do? And, and I guess really what I want to say is, is this something that expert advisory services can, can help them out with? Is this something we could do for them? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have these conversations all the time. So we can help with everything from identifying the right test to do from an irritation and sensitization standpoint. We, we didn't really talk about this. There are, are several tests allowed in the standards, and there are times when those other tests, which are not as common, should be selected. So you want to be thoughtful in the tests you do select if you have to go get that data yourself through some in vitro or in vivo testing. And we can help write up the justifications, document those thought processes, like I was you know, we were, you were talking about earlier with the cleaning validation, and then also interpret those results on the cleaning validation in the back end, interpret all test results at the end. So yes, uh, we can help from the beginning to the end and in the middle with problems and afterwards with submission issues as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I think is great. And, and I, I guess the message there is, you know, this is a, a, a long, complicated set of tests. It really, really helps to have, you know, two decades of experience in your corner so you can do it right the first time. And it, it sounds like your team, Audrey, is there and ready and willing to help uh, throughout the entire process. So uh, so, so with that, I, I think that we should uh, uh, close it out. I think that's it for sensitization and irritation. I'm, I'm sure that we'll be back to talk about more biocompatibility from other angles in future episodes. Oh yeah, and I I completely I I completely agree with you guys. Uh, we'll definitely have some more episodes down the road, and you guys did a great job. And thank you both for taking the time out of your day to go over this and give your expert opinions on this. And like we said before, Nelson Labs has done this uh, plenty of times. So if you have any questions, please reach out to them. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode of RCA Radio. Be sure to subscribe to be the first to know when we upload the next episode of RCA Radio. Thanks again and have a great day.